Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Nadia Bujarwa, co-founder and CEO of Dia & Co. Dia launched in 2014 to cater to women wearing size 10 to 32 who have forever been neglected in the fashion industry. Since, more brands have launched inclusive sizing, including Old Navy, which is now treating women size zero, the same as those wearing size 30. I wanted to ask Nadia about what progress she's seeing in the market and how Dia & Co's role has evolved, if at all. Welcome, Nadia. Hi, Jill. So happy to be back on the podcast. Excited to chat today. Yes, round two. Happy to have you back. A lot has changed since last time. Oh my God, years and years. <laughs> it's been a bit, um, but welcome. We were saying we we saw each other at Fashion Week uh, briefly at 11 on Array. Ah, tell me about this and about the importance of that show. It was such a beautiful show. It really was. I think, you know, I think the thing that's always unique to me about um, the inclusive fashion space is that it certainly is about the, you know, beautiful designs coming down the runway and the power of fashion, which is what we're all, you know, excited to see during Fashion Week. But I do think that the inclusive shows have so much more community and the, I don't know if you notice this too, but just the ambiance of being in the room at that show was as much a part of the experience, I thought, as, you know, the looks coming down the runway themselves. And it was just really great to be able to have the community back together after, you know, being virtual for so long. I, it was, it, it it's made my year so far. It's been, it was really wonderful. I would agree. And Man, you, you said that was your lone uh, Fashion Week show, but, um, you know, the Fashion Spot used to do their diversity and inc inclusivity report and talking about um, kind of what happened every fashion month. Um, I mean, I did you notice, I guess, inclusive sizing throughout the shows? Was that kind of, um, I guess, confined to dedicated size inclusive shows like Eleven Honoré? Um, what were you seeing? I mean, I think that there have always been designers that have led the conversation on this front. And we saw this even this year, I think Siriano pushed the boundary even further um, of how he approached inclusivity in, in the show. And I think, you know, I think that in the world of, of designer fashion, I think that the voices that have emerged as leaders continue to be leaders and where the most progress needs to happen is with everybody else, you know, kind of really bringing up the you know, the back of that line and getting the average to a better place. Um, but it's really impossible to do that without the pioneers like Christian and others who have been doing this now for, you know, at least four years, five years. Um, and so it's almost, you know, it's not as notable in some ways when you see it, but I think it's, it's just as important because it, it fundamentally changes expectations around representation and therefore moves the conversation forward in a way that's critical. I just wish it could happen a little bit faster, but it's what we're here for. Yes. Well, let's circle back 2014 uh, when you got this baby off the ground. Um, I How have things evolved for you and your approach um, over the last couple of years? Um, I think I mentioned in the intro size 10 to 32. I, I'm not sure. At one point I saw size 14. Maybe you started there at one point. Maybe the sizes size range has expanded. Um, and also, you know, the, the Dia box, I know that that's an element and yeah, tell me anyway, tell me about how your business model has evolved. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that our approach, um, idea has never changed. I think what that's meant about how our business comes to life has, right. So we founded this business 
I guess going on seven years ago, um, really to try to figure out how to finally make the experience of shopping in clothes in larger sizes more enjoyable, right? I have worn many sizes in my life, as I'm sure, you know, most people can relate to. Um, But especially when I was younger, I wore much larger sizes. And, you know, I think the combination of having been a size 24, you know, teenager and experiencing the evolution of my shopping experience, even as I started working and had more disposable income and was able to shop, really, no matter what happened, any time that I was shopping above a size 10, it was a fundamentally different shopping experience. And it was, um, you know, in brief moments of my life when I was before below a size 10. Um, and that really stayed with me. And I think really figuring out in a systemic way, how does that change such that it's not you know, just one campaign or one announcement or one runway show, but really a fundamentally different experience for women who are size 10 and above is what we set out to do. And the reality is that the answer to that question has changed as our business has matured. In 2014, the idea of inclusive fashion was a peripheral topic, right? It really was not something that anyone was speaking about. We were still in the early days of social media. And so the ability to have conversations that were outside of the mainstream of fashion was very limited. And, you know, we were really the first um, in, I would say, the new guard um, of inclusive fashion players to say something here needs to change. Right. And and we're going to dedicate ourselves figuring out what that is. As Dia has matured and grown and evolved, the industry has as well, though. And I do think that this is an area of fashion that has seen a more rapid um, evolution probably than any other, right? Because if you fast forward from 2014 to 2018, the conversation had fundamentally changed. Every retailer was starting to think about what a more inclusive sizing strategy could look like. And by really the end of 2018 into 2019, dozens and dozens and dozens of retailers who had never had anything above, you know, a large, extra large, 12, 14, 16, all of a sudden did. And it was an incredible moment of progress in our category. And as that happened, our role also evolved, right? We've always seen ourselves as the problem solver for the customer. um, And where the problem was originally access and supply, right? A lot of the early days of Dio was in building brands ourselves and working on collaborations and truly bringing better product to market and helping her navigate it. Um, I think today the role that we play is really much more oriented in helping all the brands that have actually invested in expanding their sizes um, finally reach this customer and helping our customer finally reach the brands that she's wanted the most. Um, And, you know, in the last two years in particular, that marketplace role um, has really emerged as, as our most important role um, and where we're the most focused today. Right on. Well, we've talked about, I think, at the Glossy Summit, we, we love you, Nadia. <laughs> um, I, just, I just remember our conversation there um, about, I think it was maybe Ann Taylor, um, a, a retailer um, that had maybe inched into the category or, or even maybe did it a little bit large in a larger way, but um, has since folded it or pulled back. Um, and yeah, did they just not have the support? They did not have the know-how? What, what's going on for the brands that don't make a go of it? Yeah. So, I mean, the unfortunate reality is that 
once the dust settled on all the headlines and launches in 2018 and 2019, certainly exacerbated by COVID, right? You can't, it's impossible to kind of dissect what caused what in this situation. I think what we started realizing and what brands started realizing and we started hearing from brands is that it was just a lot harder than anyone expected, right? I think that one of the perils of the plus size market is that because it's so underserved, I think it's easy to think that it will be easy to have a business in that category because it's so underserved. So it must be that if we have a product, you know, the customers will appear and the business will be successful. And the truth is that it's just not in any way easy, right? And and that's not because the customer is not there and it's not because the customer is not excited about fashion. It's because none of the connective tissue exists to make that transaction possible. And so really what we hear from brands, and it's truly consistent across every brand conversation we have. It's like an extraordinary, an extraordinarily templated experience, I would say, across brands in that brands realize that they have to make a large investment in product development to get fit right, to really expand, you know, how they do it, which is critically important. Fit is very hard and plus, and if you don't actually make that investment, none of the rest matters. Um, but brands are, were increasingly willing to make that investment. Brands were also increasingly willing to put dollars into inventory, right? Especially brands that have both brick and mortar and online ex- uh, and online, you know, experiences had much higher inventory burdens as the sizes expanded, and many brands were willing to do that as well. But then really like the clincher is that the third major bucket of investment has to do with brand awareness and actually finally telling the customer that you're there. And what we realize, and I think what most brands realize in doing this is that when you have for a long time not served this customer, your job is not actually brand awareness, right? There is no customer that doesn't know that, maybe not know, but there are very few customers that don't know that Ann Taylor exists or Loft um, exists, right? What they don't know is that Loft carries their sizes. And the reality is that that's a much higher hurdle to overcome because one of the results of that is that customers in our sizes are extraordinarily ad blind to brands that are speaking to them for the first time because it's not that they haven't seen those ads before. They just intuitively believe that it's not for them. And so what we find is that once all this investment has been made in product development and inventory, brands hit a wall where the sales don't materialize. And I think it's that final bit that really has been, you know, kind of the the nail in the coffin of a lot of these um, endeavors. And Loft is a good is a good example. Loft had really great product. I think we heard and you know, we continue to hear from customers that are very um, happy with the actual product and with the assortment and with the style. It was available in stores, it was available online. And the business case just didn't materialize because the demand didn't appear as quickly as it would have needed to for that to make sense. And so I think as we think about our role in particular, we and I think most brands agree that the idea of doing the work on product development, building out an assortment that both from a fit and from a style point of view perspective are unique to that brand is just the work that brands need to do. I think where Dia becomes the critical bridge here is in actually helping those brands finally get the awareness that they deserve and that they can have within the community such that all those pieces come together. Um, And, you know, Loft was one that I wish and the offer still stands loft. Like if, you know, if there was a way to help bring that back to life through the DIA platform, we'd love to do that. 
you know, I think some brands threw in the towel before an alternative was possible, but I think for a lot of other brands, um, really partnering with us on our marketplace has allowed them to actually realize the traffic awareness and ultimately sales um, in these sizes that they were just um, understandably finding it difficult and expensive to do on their own. Yes. So your your website, your platform, it's like a gateway like you, you to, to saying it's almost your stamp of approval, would you say, mm-hmm. that, that it is able to be found on your site? So um, this did use actual fit models in a range of sizes. They didn't just scale, whatever, exactly. that we all know can't work. Um, yeah. Tell me about under brands. There's brands to know. Is this a marketplace model? I know you have a larger, I guess, I see Universal Standard. I see Madewell, which I know you have a larger partnership. Does your partnership and integration with these brands vary? Um, what's happening there? Um, it can vary. I think that, um, so as you noted at the beginning, we have two sides of our business and they work together very well. So we have a styling um, business where customers who are looking for a higher touch experience can work with a stylist to really have that discovery um, and styling experience that I think is uniquely possible when there's a human involved in the process. Um, and then we have the kind of more traditional looking e-commerce side of the business, which is much more around customers choosing what they want themselves. And of course, we're always available for support, but it's otherwise a self-directed experience. Um, the marketplace component lives on the e-commerce side. Um, so, you know, the nature of our business today is that on the styling side, we do have to co-locate that inventory and, um, you know, it has different inventory requirements, I'd say overall. Um, so, and some brands work on both, right? So it's a fairly, it can end up being a fairly bespoke experience. I think figuring out what the brand um, is looking to achieve. The nice thing about the marketplace side of our business is that it allows brands to have efficiency in the inventory they already own because brands fulfill that demand. And so, you know, um, universal standard, for example, we pull from the same inventory base as they do. And so wherever the sale occurs, they're able to, to, you know, sell the inventory and it's not, um, it doesn't, add inventory holding costs for them um, or other costs and and being able to do so. So it really depends. We're able to do both. Um, Certainly the marketplace side, just given the flexibility and um, how much technology can do to make that a simple process is, is growing faster than our styling business from a asset intensity perspective ever could. Um, so we're, we're, we're excited about both and they really work uniquely together, but the marketplace side is much more on the self-directed experience. How is it impacting your business as more brands go there? They may or may not link with you. Is it kind of like more awareness that fashion is coming to this underserved market and like the rising tide lifts all boats or whatever the expression is? Um, yeah. Um, how would you describe, yeah, the impact of more brands going there? We certainly believe that rising tides lift all boats. I think as a leader in the category, we benefit from rising tides probably more than most. But it's true that, um, you know, at the end of the day, we believe that what's required here is more shopping experiences, better shopping experiences, true access to style and fashion for all women, right? And so the more that can be true, the more present this customer is in the experience and therefore the more the category can grow. Um, I will say though that in all honesty, there's not, um, it's not 
hard for brands to understand why they need to be at Dia, right? I think that most brands struggle with the cost of driving traffic, with the cost of customer acquisition, with the, um, you know, just truly the, the burden of driving a business across multiple categories and simultaneously understand and deeply believe in the imperative to be more inclusive in what they offer. And if you put those two things together, maybe like one of the things that's fundamentally changed in the last five years is that I do believe that brands genuinely want to be more inclusive today in a way that some just hadn't thought about it before and some maybe didn't want to more explicitly, but I think all brands want to be in the space and all businesses work with a set of constraints that mean that you can't do everything, right? And so I, I think having us as a partner and a way to grow businesses in those sizes more cost-effectively is not really a hard sell. What do brands want to know from you? Do they want to know about your loyal customer base? They want to know how many customers? What Do you need to sell them on <laughs> this idea? Um, yeah, what are they most interested in? Um, so I think that the things that we can do uniquely is certainly our community is, you know, the most qualified base of plus customers that, you know, you can get in a multi-brand context today. Um, but I think that the thing that actually brands end up wanting to have the most of is that many brands are still in like a learn and iterate phase of their inclusive fashion offerings. And the amount of data that we get back from customers and our ability to package that data into insights for our brand partners, I think is ultimately the most valuable. Because really, in a lot of ways, unlike a marketplace that is completely hands-off, right, like an Amazon or something like that, part of the value proposition of being on Dia's marketplace is the plus-size expertise that we have and that we very generously share, right? Our hope is that every product in every category becomes more robust because of the learnings that we can share. And I think that that's actually, um, for many brands that really want to figure out how to do this better, the what they're most curious about um, and the data that they most want to understand how they can use. Well, you mentioned some brands just maybe in the past just haven't wanted to go there. Like, <laughs> what's the reasoning? Obviously, this market, it's a large market. Like, you're missing out on sales, not going there. And obviously, it's a hurdle to get there. But like, you would think that that would be on everybody's uh, wish list <laughs> early on, like, even out of the gate. Um, is it is it a lie that maybe <laughs> the higher higher end the brand, the less likely they are to go there? And why? Um, anyway, why would they not want to? I mean, I think if you like boil this down to the root of root causes, the reality is that we live in a world that is deeply, deeply driven by weight bias. And that is true in fashion. It is true in medicine. It is true in employment situations it is true in social situations like there there's no as much progress as we've made I think it would be naive for us to think that weight bias as really like a pretty foundational part of how our society works is not alive and well right and I think you know I I would love to believe that businesses operate purely rationally and that somehow human biases don't find their way into business decision making but the reality is that Businesses are just groups of people making decisions. And so where there are biases, I think that it, you see that play out um, in the decisions that are made. I think, to be honest, it's become less popular to be weight biased in your approach. And that's, I think, the thing that's ultimately driven a lot of the change. 
And that's not to say that there aren't brands and designers who genuinely wanted to be there earlier. That's absolutely true, right? There have always been leaders in the category. I just like, you know, like we were talking about before, I think as important as the leaders are, true change happens when the middle of the bell curve actually moves. Um, And I think that that's the place where I think weight bias has always played a part and I think will continue to play a part for some years ahead. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. How has the last two years that since the start of the pandemic really impacted um, that decision-making or brands going there where um, really in, in some aspects, it's like, you know, luxury brands that maybe didn't want to make active wear in the past are going there. It's like, it's business. We need to make money now and focus on what is driving sales. Like, has that, what's been the impact in, in the inclusivity space? You know, I think that it's actually the last couple of years have been one of the most interesting periods of time to think about the, the pressures that brands are under, because I think that the social calls of inclusivity have never been more pronounced, right? I think that in every aspect of inclusivity, inclusivity really moved into the limelight um, in the last two years. At the same time that apparel overall as a category with some some exceptions did not fare well during COVID, right? Most people bought less clothes um, outside of the obvious categories that did very well. And you put those two things together and it's like, these businesses were under very different pressures. Um, most inclusive fashion offerings across retailers were fairly new coming into the pandemic, as we were talking about. I think 2018 and 2019 is really when we saw these things, you know, appear for the first time. Therefore, they were the most nascent. Therefore, they were the least proven out. And I think in moments of business challenge, which COVID was for most apparel sellers, you have to focus on the core, right? You have to go back to what you know and what you know performs. And unfortunately, that meant that a lot of plus businesses really either got cut completely, like in the case of Loft, or in the more common case, just got reduced, right? And so now I think we're in this moment where every brand understands the social imperative and we're able to, you know, kind of refill the coffers a little bit from an inventory perspective. And so we're hopeful that we're at the beginning of the next renaissance of plus size fashion where, you know, both the, the social imperative and the inventory availability finally meet. Um, but I, I'd say overall that if you think about the actual shopping experience in plus during the pandemic, it went back pretty dramatically. Um, so we have more work ahead of us. For sure. How impactful is the Old Navy launch ex- um, expanding to zero Every style, zero to size, I think 32 or 30, um, 30, anyway, um, and available on the same rack, on the same product page. Um, there's no separation there that, uh, that was the plan. I don't know if that's panning out. Actually, I haven't been closely watching it. Um, is that where we're going? Is it going to take a good 20 years to get there? Um, yeah. Tell me about this model. I think that the old Navy approach is the most ideal approach for a brand to take, right? The idea of having pricing par- pricing parity, assortment parity, availability parity, the three ends of the triangle that are truly the most critical, if it can be achieved and sustained, because I think what ends up happening sometimes is that brands come out with big announcements and then slowly backslide a little bit. Um, that's the gold standard. I think that And we were so excited and supportive of the Old Navy announcement in every possible way, shape, and form. 
I think that the irony of the Old Navy announcement is that it actually made other brands more hesitant to do anything at all. And because it it kind of changed the reference point, it changed what they were going to be compared to. And so, you know, even in our conversations, there were a number of brands that had launches planned for that period of time and realized that that launch was not going to sound as robust because it's impossible to um, as the old Navy one. And so kind of pulled back, um, which I think is, is the worst possible outcome, right? We, we adamantly, adamantly believe that getting to a place of a truly inclusive offering is a long journey. There are, there are just, it's just not practical to wait until every brand can have a big bang moment like old Navy. And, you know, so our advice to brands all along and continues to be, just start, right? Find a way to start, find a way to start building and get the, as long as the customer knows that they're on a journey with you where things are going to get better and that that is communicated clearly, the end point doesn't have to be today, right? And so, um, you know, our hope is that brands aren't actually scared away by that and take our advice to just get started um, and do that. I think that the reality remains though, that 99% 99% of brands can't do what Old Navy did and need to have a different approach. And we believe that working together is the only way to get the vast majority of brands that continue to have subscale plus offerings to a place where they can be successful. Um, and that's the role that we were playing today. Love it. Well, tell me about your your consumer, your customer's shopping habits. Um, she's coming to you for discovery. Um, I'm sure there are pain points left and right when she's <laughs> shopping for clothing to this day. Um, yeah. Is she, is she shopping online? Is she going to store? It, it has that changed in the last two years? I think it's changed probably more so than it has for any customer that shops for apparel. And I say that for two reasons. One, the plus consumer always was indexed higher online than she was in stores to begin with. Two, the impact that we saw on the store base in plus size specialty retailers was just dramatically larger than for the rest of the retail world, right? So we track store closures in our space pretty closely. Nearly 40% of stores closed doors permanently from the beginning of the pandemic to the end of the pandemic amongst plus size specialty retailers. The idea of thinking about 40% of an experience coming out in that short period of time, I think, you know, would have sounded like a business school simulation until the pandemic hit. Like just, you yeah. wouldn't believe that that was possible. Um, and yet that's what happened. And so I think when you combine the fact that this was a customer that was more um, online oriented coming into the pandemic with the magnitude of store closures, which we believe is permanent um, through the pandemic, this customer is just shopping online um, far in excess, I would say what customers in smaller sizes um, are today. So. Yeah. Do you have physical retail aspirations? I think that you told me a story once about somebody that you had talked to that lived across, I don't know, some mall of America, some booming mall, and they could shop at like one store in the, this, I don't know, record world record size mall (laughs) anyway. But yeah, is that a goal? That's it. That is a, unfortunately very common experience. Um, you know, we, we're definitely open to the idea of physical retail. Um, we definitely wouldn't say never. I think that the thing that we've been more focused on in the near term, though, is realizing that this is a customer who um, I think is 
is like ahead of the adoption curve in e-commerce. And so instead of trying to necessarily prioritize having the in-store experience for her, I think where we have found more success and where we continue to focus is on actually figuring out what the value propositions are of the in-store experience and building that into her online experience. So, you know, I think that when you go into a store, there are two things that are the most unique about an in-store experience relative to shopping online. Um, One is being able to try clothes on. And the other one is kind of discovery and inspiration, right? You go in and you see how a store is merchandised. You kind of can see things all at once and you may pick things up that you may not have clicked on on a, on a um, you know, on a website. In other regards, online is better, right? If you think about overall inventory availability, pricing, transparency, online wins, right? So instead of figuring out how you know, if we need to be in stores, I think what we've done instead is bring the fitting room and discovery into her online experience. So in both our styling box, as well as actually on our marketplace, customers can put down a deposit and get up to 10 items, try on at home without purchasing them, effectively creating a fitting room experience for her. Um, And discovery is kind of at the heart of what we do. I think that the stylist discovery experience is very clear and translating that into the the shopping experience on our, on the marketplace side is something that we're continuing to work on. But I'd say overall, our strategy has been to bring the in-store shopping experience value props into the online experience, um, which for our customer base works particularly well. For sure. Well, I'm sure there's great word of mouth. What else is working to get customers uh, to your site uh, to shop your 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 goods and your marketplace items? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we're in a uh, – the pace of change in digital marketing, I think, has never been um, faster. And for many brands that came up in the years that we did, 2014, 2015 – I think we all experienced a moment in time around 2018, 2019, where all of a sudden social, you know, paid social marketing was just untenable in terms of its cost. And the reality of organic social um, with any meaningful reach on Facebook or Instagram became very hard because they would much rather you pay for that reach. Um, and so, you know, a lot of brands and us included were in this hard spot of figuring out how do we get to our customers more organically? when we only serve her online. Um, and I think that one of the most exciting things that's happened is TikTok because TikTok has basically reintroduced the notion of true organic reach on social platforms. Um, so we're very excited about TikTok. Um, we spend a lot of time there. We also, um, TikTok is really one of the major cornerstones of uh, our brand ambassador program, which is one of the ways that we drive the most reach, not only for ourselves, but for the brands that we partner with as well. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of women um, posting across social channels, but really with a focus on TikTok through our brand ambassador program. And I think the combination of those two things has, for us at least, just ushered in a new era of really earned and organic reach um, on social platforms that was a, a thing of the past before TikTok. I love that. Are you really letting those ambassadors, those influencers drive the conversation for Dia on the platform? Do you also have an account where you're, um, yeah, creating original content? We do. You know, I think that these these platforms are very different. I think that TikTok is a platform where authentic and distributed content does better. So we repost a lot of our brand ambassador content, but 
I, I personally don't think that people go on to TikTok to hear from brands, right? They go on to TikTok to hear from people. And so, you know, letting our brand ambassadors authentically engage um, with our product and their communities has been the winning strategy there. Instagram is different, obviously. And I think Instagram has much more um, first party content for us overall, but um, we're just, you know, we just have to hope that TikTok doesn't turn into Instagram or Facebook too soon. (laughs) It's so, so fun. And you really see, I I see a lot of um, kind of try-ons on Instagram and, and calling out brands that are, aren't getting fit right, um, for sure. I'm sure that that's helpful. And it's not Gen Z. I'm hearing, I mean, early on, I'm sure Gen Z was early adopters, but is this a play for Gen Z or you're also finding that who is taking to that content, it, it spans the gamut? I think it's a much wider range of ages than most people would realize. Um, certainly on TikTok, but even in that same, all TikTok content finds its way onto Instagram. And so you know, the, the ecosystems are very, very interconnected, but, um, you know, our, our primary customer is not a Gen Z customer. She's a little bit older. Um, and she is very effectively reached, I think, through this content on these channels. Great. Got to ask, what's been your fundraising strategy so far? Are you actively fundraising? Are you all set for a bit? Uh, we are not actively fundraising. We are set. Um, I think, you know, in our business, we've always tried to toggle between accelerating growth when we see opportunities to do that and managing the business responsibly in other times. Um, and so far that's worked well. So, you know, I think as our marketplace strategy continues to take off where there are opportunities for us to really put more gas behind that, we will certainly not be bashful about bringing more capital into the business. We've raised, you know, a lot of money. Um, but I think that making sure that we're doing that thoughtfully is, is very, very critical. And, um, so far we've been able to do that. Right on. Well, tell me about the the state of the company and your goals for 2022. Are you back at 2019 levels already? Where are you? Yeah, we're pretty, um, we're pretty much post our, our COVID experience. The COVID um, trough for us was actually in 2021, Q1 2021. Um, we're, I'd say the, probably the darkest days in COVID overall and in apparel retail. Um, but we're, we're back. And I think in terms of the focus, um, you know, the core of, of what we want to be able to do for our customers to actually give her the joy of, style freedom when she shops, right? I think for a long time, plus size women felt as though if they didn't like what Lane Bryant or Tord had to offer, there was just nothing else that they could really access with any ease. Um, And Tord and Lane Bryant are great brands and great businesses, but they are single brands and they stand for single aesthetics and they have to, right? And so I think what we want to be able to do is really bring the best of any style that she may want, any aesthetic that she may want to one place so that the fundamental experience of settling as a plus size woman in shopping can go away. Um, so, you know, brands is, are the name of the game for us and really continuing to onboard brands and partner with brands um, as, you know, quickly and, and thoroughly as we can is, is kind of the focus. And I think continuing to drive selection in that way um, 
will keep us busy for for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, we're circling back to, uh, I guess, 11 on a right. Like, in speaking with Patrick Herning, he was telling me, and I, I was just like, your photography, it's so high fashion. It speaks to the brand you carry in terms of your content and maybe the look and feel of Dia. And you, I think you're a little bit more have your work cut out for you in terms of speaking to a broader audience and with a broader uh, range of brands. Um, yeah. How would you, I guess, communicate this? This is great fashion for you. Um, what's your focus there? I think that the, you know, I think that's something that consumers universally respond to is aspiration in whatever style aesthetic they subscribe to. Right. So, you know, I think that um, Patrick and, um, the team at 11 Honoré do such a great job of establishing aspiration in the luxury aesthetic and category and price point. Um, and we do that at a more accessible price point across, um, across aesthetics. But I, you know, I think at the end of the day, even if someone doesn't have the style that you like, you kind of know style when you see it. Um, and that sense of confidence and put togetherness that comes from, you know, really seeing something that's aspirational. And that's what we really strive to be able to communicate um, in, you know, our, our content overall. And the truth is that that translates across any aesthetic. So whether you are more traditional, more formal, you know, more casual, more bohemian, I think that it's a, it's easy to spot. Right on. Well, last question. First of all, are you at your office? What's happening in-house? Is your team evolving? Is your team growing? Where are you and who's there? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we, along with everybody else, are trying very hard to hire um, and finding it, you know, certainly more difficult than it's been in a long time to really get great talent. Um, the labor markets are very competitive right now. Um Dia, for in terms of like team location and stuff, Dia was always a distributed team. Um, from the early, early days of Dia, we had folks on the West Coast, folks on the East Coast. Um, we we did have, you know, kind of the largest part of our team in New York City, and that's no longer true today. So we will remain remote first. Um, and uh, we have, you know... Um, we have a space in New York and we also have some parts of our business are physical, like warehousing and stuff like that. So those spaces remain. Um, but we are a remote first company and I think that that's not for everybody. And we certainly have had employees who've really wanted, um, to be able to go back to the way that things used to be. But I think that the reality of the flexibility that that confers onto folks on our team um, and our ability to recruit and retain um, great talent anywhere in the company, anywhere in the country um, has outweighed that for us. Well, hey, bonus uh, job post. Are you looking for anybody in particular? Tech folks, <laughs> content folks? <laughs> we are, are looking for so many folks. Um, <laughs> certainly on the creative side, editorial director, um, brand marketers, um, CRM experts, <laughs> please check out our job boards. We have a lot of awesome opportunities, um, that are open to anyone, anywhere in the country. So. Yes. But I hear you on that challenge. What a job market. It's weird. Anyway. It really is. It <laughs> right really is. On. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for being here once again. It was so fun. Thanks, Jill. It's so good to see you. 
That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.